Eagles Entertainment. With the 12th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we're going to have some fun today on the show because we are going to be breaking down wide receivers. Myself, Ben Fennel, Dane Brugler, right on Draft Buzz. We're going to go through some of the top receivers. Who are the best uh, at the catch point? Who are the best technicians? Who are the most versatile? Just a couple of the multitude of categories we will go through uh, to break down this receiver class right at the top of the show. We'll talk about some players that uh, maybe viewed as safe uh, in this class, uh, certainly full of uncertainty. Next up, we're going to go on the clock, the return of this segment, really for the last time before the NFL draft. We're going to pick three random players for three random teams the three different parts of the draft. So the Washington football team, the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Seattle Seahawks, they are all on the clock for myself, for Dane, and for Ben. Make sure you stay tuned for that segment. After that, we're going to go to the blueprint, and this could be a little bit of a different spin on this segment because typically I welcome in a guest. We go through uh, draft history and just kind of bounce around at some of the different team-building philosophies with a given team. Well, recently, I-, I was happy to join John Schmelk over on the Giants Huddle podcast, and we would go through uh, not just what it looks like for the Eagles and for the Giants in this draft, but also – Julie Donaldson of the Washington football team and David Hellman from the Dallas Cowboys. It was a little bit of an NFC East roundup. So I took some pieces from that segment and put it right here uh, for the blueprints, so a little bit of NFC East talk uh, there in that segment. And then we'll wrap it up with a question from you at home in our draft mailbag. We've got a couple of good questions from you guys to wrap it up. And speaking of questions and answers, if you got, if you guys want to get in some questions for myself, Dane Brugler and Greg Cosell before the NFL draft, Jump on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a comment, because next week, before the NFL draft kicks off, we're going to do a Q&A with Dane and with Greg, myself. It is going to be a fun roundtable the week of the draft. Make sure, if you've got a question, you can jump on. We're, we're going to solicit on Twitter as well, on social media. But the best way, and you guys know this, the best way is to go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Leave the question in the review, and we will answer it. And also, it's a little bit of a, it's, it helps us out as well and boosts us up the ranking. So if you've got a question, we'll solicit for it on Twitter, but make sure you go on to Apple Podcasts and leave that there. Also, look, if you are listening to this show right now for the first time, you're trying it out, maybe you just, you're just trying to cram as you get closer to draft weekend or just a week away. And you think, ah, I'll just unsubscribe after the draft is over. I'm here to tell you now, don't do it. We keep this podcast rolling all year round. And I promise that for all the reasons that you like listening to this show right now, we provide that same information in-depth all year long, because no matter what time of the year it is, this podcast transforms its identity and its shape and its structure. And the whole time, our goal is to make you a smarter fan about this entire process. So if you want to know who the guys are that are picked next week that are going to impact their future NFL teams, we're going to be doing that immediately after the draft. If you want to hear from longtime talent evaluators, whether they're GMs or scouts or even just longtime media members, and you want to hear me pick their brains about how they scout players at every position, I start those sit-downs right in about the month of June. And if you want to start learning about next year's prospects, we start that in July, which is right around the corner from the college football season. We do our weekly previews leading all the way up to the senior bowl and the combine and all that. The whole process starts over again. So if you want to stay up to date, not just with who the prospects are, because I, I get it. You don't always want to know who the top prospects are, but if you want to just be better, a smarter football fan, make sure you are stay subscribed right here to the journey to the draft podcast. Appreciate everybody that stays subscribed all year round. That being said, let's get this episode going. I'm excited to kick things off. Talk wide receivers with Dane and with Ben. It's time for Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, so like I said earlier, we're just over a week away from the 2021 NFL Draft, and we've already teased some of the things we're going to be doing here uh, over the course of Draft Week. But, uh, guys, we've got one more position preview as I welcome in Dane Brugler and Ben Fennell. And, guys, uh, before we get to the wide receivers, you know, there's just so much uncertainty in this class. You know, we've talked about all the reasons why and how it's such a unique process and the lack of exposure, the lack of information. Who are, the, who are the players in this class, though, that are the opposite, where you you kind of know what you're buying, you know what you're getting? Who are the safe players? Dane, uh, I'll come to you. Let's each kind of give one on both sides of the football, one offense, one defense. Uh, Dane, we'll come to you first. Who's a, a safe player that comes to mind for you on the offensive side? I'm going to go with, and it feels weird because he was an opt-out, so there's a little bit of uncertainty there. But in terms of a safe player that I just feel really strongly about, I'm going to go with Rashawn Slater. Um, Penny Sewell is my top tackle 
and a big part of that is the upside that he offers for being such a young player and the natural talent. Slater, I just feel like I have a good idea of what I'm getting. And I think he's a tackle, but worst case scenario, I think he's going to be a dynamite guard, interior offensive lineman, um, you know, 6'4", 305 pounds, really good athlete, uh, smart player. Um, you know, there's just a lot there that I think I'm working with. And so even if I want to move him inside, tackle, guard, I, I just feel like his floor is very, very high. And I, I feel confident about not there not being many surprises with, with uh, Rashawn Slater, even though he was an opt out. I still feel good about it. I do feel like that's going to be a consistent theme with the players that we bring up. It's like, all right, like even if the guy fails, if he doesn't live up to the draft slot, you right. still feel like you're getting uh, you know a, a valuable player, a, a guy that can do some things for you, whether it's on offense or on defense. Ben, uh, let's come to you. Who's a guy that, that kind of uh, strikes that chord with you on offense? Well, it's maybe a position that isn't as valued, but I think it's such a safe player. And that's Najee Harris, mm, yep. who's played, obviously, high-level football for the Alabama Crimson Tide for four years in the SEC, in national championship games, against elite competition, with a variety of offensive schemes. You've seen him in power. You've seen him in zone. You've seen him catch the football. seen him in pass protection. He's even dabbled a little bit in special teams. He has exponentially more experience in snaps than guys like Josh Jacobs went in the first round, played 700 snaps at Bama. Najee Harris has played 1,500. You know, even Derrick Henry only played just a sniff over 1,000. So this is an experienced guy in a variety of schemes that's good on the field, off the field. He is as safe and as clear-cut that you know what you're getting as any player in this draft class. To me, I'm going to go with a a slightly different angle on it. I'm going to look at Pat Fryermuth, the tight end from Penn State, and, uh, you know, a junior, but this is a guy who came in as a freshman, became an an instant starter, a three-year starter for James Franklin uh, out there with with the Nittany Lions. And I think when you look at Fryermuth, just a very well-rounded game, you know that he can come in and contribute as a blocker. He's a really steady, reliable pass catcher. He's not as dynamic, obviously, as Kyle Pitts, but not as dynamic as Brevin Jordan, maybe not as dynamic as even like a Tommy Tremble, but I do think that he's just rock solid across the board. You know what you're getting at the very worst with Pat Fryermuth. Like I said, even, even if he fails, I think you're still getting a, a really good number two. And maybe you want somebody that brings you a little bit more dynamic qualities uh, to the tight end room. But I think you know what you're getting there with Pat Fryermuth. Let's go over to the defensive side. Dade, I'll, I'll come back to you. Who's a guy on defense that you feel uh, is a safe player in this class? Yeah, I was looking, trying to think about this, and I feel less confident about my defensive options, Mm. but I'm going to go with Patrick Sertan, um, a a guy that has been playing the position for a long, long time. Uh, When you consider his bloodlines, the way, you know, that he grew up around the game, goes to Alabama, and he starts from day one for Nick Saban. And he was productive. Uh, I mean, 41 career games, he allowed four touchdowns. Um, So, you know, I, I think there are some parts to his game that maybe suggests he'll never be a top five to seven corner in the NFL. Like, I don't know that he necessarily has that ceiling, but I think there's a lot that suggests he's going to be just a really quality starter for a long time, both, you know, with the athleticism, uh, his mental makeup, uh, you know, the way he never panics, uh, you know, there's a lot to like there about just how his game is going to translate. So, you know, press, you know, he's going to play zone. He, He could just do a lot of things. I, he could probably move to safety and, and you know, do the Minka Fitzpatrick route, and I think he'd be fine. So if I'm going to pick a high-floor defender, I, I think, you know, the Patrick Sertan is a name that I settled on. And there's something to be said for the guys that have the high floors and the high ceilings, and I think we all know that Patrick mm-hmm. Sertan obviously uh, has a high ceiling as well. Ben, uh, let's come to you. Safe guy on defense. Well, high floor, high ceiling. That's why you go in the first round. But That's right. I'm going to go Richie Grant from uh, University of Central oh, well. Florida at safety. He just – wears too many hats for a defense, whether he's that back-end player, half field, or in single high playing the post, but he's going to come down and play slot receivers, tight ends. He's even handled some outside receivers like he did at the Senior Bowl against like Josh Palmer's of the world. And then over 500 special team snaps, he just does too many things for you to be worried about a fit or a projection with him. I feel like Richie Grant is one of the best players in this draft and one of the safest players. 
Uh, I'm going to go similar to what we talked about with the high floor, high ceiling. I think when we look at Quiddy Pay, so much of the discussion with him is centered around the upside and the athletic testing and what he could be from that standpoint. I also look at him as a high floor player. You have a high character kid who made a, a contribution on day one in that defense. It's been a similar theme a lot amongst a lot of the guys we've talked about in this segment, but uh, came in from day one. I think when you look at the, the edge rushers in this class, I think he's probably the best run defender early on in his career. Uh, and also, you know, the, the arrow is pointing up on him as a pass rusher. So to me, uh, I look at him from a uh, high floor standpoint and also uh, the ceiling is there as well. So obviously, look, uh, we all like to say, and I think all three of us feel this way, that there's no such thing as a safe player uh, in the draft, obviously. But I think when you look, you know, who are the guys that you feel best about in terms of uh, their transition? Uh, interesting discussion before we get into our wide receiver preview. And with that said, uh, let's get into that part of the segment. And we're going to start, uh, as always, we're going to look around at all these different superlatives. And to me, the first one, talk about wide receiver who are the guys that can ultimately catch the football? And so I'm going to go best ball winner. Who is the best finisher at the catch point? And the way we're going to structure this, one of us will pick a day one player. One of us will pick a day two player. So round two, round three. And then someone will finish with a day three player, a round four through round seven. Uh, Dane, you'll kick things off. A day one receiver who you feel is the best finisher at the catch point, the best ball winner in this class. I, I appreciate the layup here because this is Jamar Chase all, yeah. all the way. Uh, you want a guy that just exemplifies that my ball attitude, and that's Jamar Chase. And he's not a guy that – it's funny because he came in at just over six foot, just over 200 pounds, and you kind of forget that he's not the biggest guy, but he plays so much bigger with the way he will go up and rebound the football. Uh, you know, the fact that 85.1% of his – catches in college resulted in a first down or touchdown that that says something about his ability to win at the catch point He's a very hungry competitor uh and that shows you know before and after the catch but just just a natural with the reflexes the hand-eye coordination he could stab the ball away from his body um you know I, I think that's that's part of what makes him a possible top five pick in this draft I was interested to see if you would go with him or Devontae Smith just knowing you know Smith is I mean, maybe the best trait of his, his ball skills are outstanding, but I think you made a good argument there uh, for Jamar Chase. I'm going to go with uh, day two. I'm going to go Tylen Wallace here from Oklahoma State. And I think when you look at his ability to track and finish over the shoulder, uh, he can go up and win at the catch point and jump balls, go to the ground, inaccurate throws outside of his frame. He makes it work, and he finds a way uh, to reel in the reception, whether you know you go back to early in his career as a sophomore when he was a finalist for the Bolitnikoff Award and had all those numbers, or you know over the years, whether he was fighting through injury or uh, dealing with the inconsistent quarterback play. Uh, this guy has looked good throughout the course of his career at the catch point. He did it again at the senior bowl, uh, catches pretty much everything thrown his way. I want Tylen Wallace here from Oklahoma State. Uh, ben, let's, uh, let's come to you. Day three guy who uh, best ball winner of that group on the third day. Yeah, it's interesting on day three because there's so many names to consider. I was wondering if I want to go to the Josh and Josh or Josh Palmer and Ema mm-hmm. Baby. Is it Cornell Powell? But it's actually Jonathan Adams Jr. at Arkansas State, in my opinion. I think is one of the strongest pound-for-pound receivers, not only with just his pure physicality, but the strength in his hands, the strength at the catch point. This is a no-nonsense guy that had no problem adjusting to errant passes and really fighting off a smaller defensive backs. He reminded me, and it might have been from you, Fran, of the Michael Gallup type mm. of comp for how competitive he was at that catch point. But over the last two years, the leader in college football, FBS or FCS, in contested catches made. So he's a guy that's definitely produced and uh, can handle uh, the, the physicality at the catch point. Yeah, he's uh, certainly, and you named a couple other ones in there too. We, we talk about Immortor Baby or whether you talk about Josh Palmer, a bunch of guys uh, you could throw into discussion there for sure. Uh, let's go to the next one here. And it, it's a big play league, guys. So we want guys that can create the big play. Who is the best deep threat? I'll kick things off with a day one player. Uh, this one is a, is a layup. Uh, Dane, you used the term earlier. Jalen Waddle from Alabama. Uh, one of the most dynamic players, regardless of position in this class. He's got elite speed with and without the football. Uh, so whether you're saying, okay, you know, over the top or catch and run, Jalen Waddle uh, proved this year when healthy uh, that he certainly can do that. And over the course of his career, he has been a true big play weapon for the Alabama Crimson Tide. This one, uh, not much left to be said here uh, with what Jalen Waddle can, can bring to the table. Ben, uh, let's come to you. Day two weapon, best deep threat in this class. Well, I love Deami Brown out of North Carolina and that shot play offense off play action. He's a guy that's really strong getting off the line of scrimmage, but his route stems, his releases and getting himself open down the field. He's very savvy. 
very strong down the field as well to make some adjustments or maybe fight off a little bit of defensive pass interference and can adjust the passes too. It's a little bit small in stature at 6'1", 195. Reminds me a little bit of the, the Mike Wallace type of mold, but I think he's going to be a really nice kind of linear plane receiver for somebody. I like the Mike Wallace comp. I think that one makes a lot of sense. It's, he is literally like the prototype in terms of vertical receiver. Everything downfield is great with this kid. His route running is outstanding, a ball tracking, the ability to finish. Quick game needs some work, intermediate area, not a lot of work there. But when you're talking about those vertical routes, uh, he certainly can do that and, and showed it in spades uh, throughout the course of his career especially this year for North Carolina. Dane, uh, best deep threat on day three. Who's a name that comes to mind? Well, yeah, like Ben talked about, there's in the first uh, category there, there's so many options once you get to day three. Jalen Darden makes sense. Marquez yep. Stevenson out of Houston. Uh, Amir Smith-Marset from Iowa. I'm going to go, though, with uh, Tamarion Terry out of Florida State, who 6'3", 207, and he can fly. And just look at his track record of being a down-the-field threat. Set a school record at Florida State, five touchdown catches of at least 70 yards. And then of his 18 career touchdown grabs, half, nine of them, were at least 50 yards. So you want a deep play threat. That that right there tells you all you need to know. Size, speed, uh, there's a lot to like about just the raw traits and what he brings. There's obviously some things... He needs to work on. That's why we're talking about him as a, you know, probably an early day three guy. But I think that he has, if he can improve on some of the reliability of some aspects of his game, he could be a more dynamic version of, say, like a Marquez Valdez Scantling, that like that type of player, just more dynamic with his speed, uh, just a size speed element. So Tamarian Terry is my choice here. If you've never watched a snap of film of Tamarian Terry, I mean, six, just under six foot three. Crazy wingspan, 33 and a half inch wingspan, runs 444 at that size, over 200 pounds, and averaged 18.8 yards a catch. That just you know kind of paints a picture of the skill set that he brings to the table. Uh, let's go to the next category here. Best technician. So uh basically the way I wanted to kind of paint this, best at beating press coverage and in creating separation mid-route. So route runner beating the jam. Who's the best technician? Ben, I'll come to you. Day one, uh, who's the best technician from that group? Well, I felt pretty safe about going with Rashad Bateman in this group. And that's over Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith and some of the receivers are going to get picked ahead of him. But he's the most deliberate and dynamic pure route runner in the class from his releases, his stems, getting in and out of breaks, his consistency, his excuse me, his consistency in his stems. Very still, doesn't give away his breaks or where he's going on a down-to-down basis, can work double moves, really strong after the catch. But he's a guy, and after your conversation, excuse me, with P.J. Fleck, every step and every movement has a purpose and is deliberate. And he just knows how to attack leverage and get where he's going. And it's all about attacking space and getting to the spot with a deliberate fashion. He may not be the most electric and explosive player on the field. I know he tested exceptionally well, maybe a little better than we thought, um, but his route running is what gets gets him open and what he's going to do uh, in the NFL. I've been referring to an interview I did over on the Eagle on the Sky podcast with PJ Fleck. He compared uh, Rashad Bateman to Corey Davis and some of the, you know, another receivers that he's coached in the past uh, and just what he brings to the NFL. So you can go find that uh, if you're interested in learning more about Rashad Bateman. Dane, let's go to you now. Uh, day two, best technician in this class. I struggle with two guys here. I'm kind of debating. I'm still debating which one I want to go with. Uh, (laughs) It it comes down to Amon Ross St. Brown and Amari Rogers for me. Um, And, you know, you look at uh, Amari Rogers, his former uh, offensive coordinator, Jeff Scott, summed it up perfectly by calling him a master of the details. Uh, Start, stop quickness at the stem. Uh, You know, he, he can make guys miss before and after the catch. He's strong at the catch point. Uh, there's just a lot to like about what he offers, toughness, play strength, all of that. I'm probably going to lean him on say Brown here though. Um, you know, a guy that can win it with his releases can win uh, at the top of the route, uh, tracks the ball. Well, uh, you know, he, he just came into at the college level from high school as already a, a pretty polished player. Uh, you know, a guy that really focuses on those details and really works at it. So I don't know that he necessarily has, a trump card with his physical attributes so yep. he's not he's average size the speed is average he was a four five nine guy in the 40 yard dash um under seven seconds in the three cones a really good number for him 
But uh, I think that, you know, he's a guy that, you know, the polish is really what's going to help him separate him once he gets to the next level. Yeah, uh, I would have definitely agreed with you that Amon Ross St. Brown uh, would get the nod there. I will say Amari Rogers really won me over with his route running uh, and ability to get off a jam at the senior bowl. I thought he did a really good job in that area uh, down there in Mobile. And I would say the same thing about my two guys here for day three. And it's one of them is Rogers teammate from Clemson, Cornell Powell, uh, who really came on late bloomer, only one year as a starter this year as a senior, but big body kid who can get off a jam can carve up corners to create separation for himself. And he's got some length as well, but uh, just talking about just from a pure technique standpoint, I thought Cornell Powell uh, was a guy who really stood out to me. And then another one, uh, similar kind of body type, Des Fitzpatrick from Louisville. Uh, his career, his best year was as a true freshman with Lamar Jackson, but uh, you still, throughout the course of his career, uh, you could see a guy who knows how to you know, win at the top of the route stamp, ran a full route tree, uh, can get off a jam, uh, understands how to win with multiple releases. Uh, I think that Des Fitzpatrick, Cornell Powell, day three, uh, they have those skill sets to come in, and maybe they're not top-end Pro Bowl players. You know, that's probably not their, their overall ceiling, um, but I do think that they can come in and contribute early on because of that technical skill set. Uh, all right, guys, let's, uh, let's stop the day one, day two, day three delineations here. Let's just kind of open it up. Most versatile, obviously, you know, with the way that offense is played now, uh, all the different jet sweeps and quick throws, RPOs, you like guys that have versatile skill sets. It can be used in lots of different ways. So, Dane, I'll come to you. Who's the most versatile receiver in this class in your mind? I'm going to go with Kadarius Tony. Uh, you, you watched just how he was using that Florida offense across the formation, backfield, out wide, slot, um, special teams. Uh, he became the featured punt returner this past year, had a touchdown, returned kicks. Uh, oh, you want him to throw passes? Okay, the Florida coaches say he has a strongest arm on the team. Uh, high school quarterback who, who can sling it a little bit. Uh, but really the bread and butter of what he offers comes down to his start-stop athleticism. Uh, just how dynamic he is uh, to get open and then create. It, it's something special. So you're going to try and scheme ways to get him open. There are times where he freelances way too much with his routes, and that's going to be something that is going to be a point of emphasis once he gets into the NFL. But when you have his uh, combination of athletic traits and just instincts uh, with the ball in his hands, and even without the ball in his hands, he just has a, as a knack for getting open or creating his own separation. So uh, with the ways you can use Kadarius Tony, I'm going to go with him for most versatile. Yeah, I'll I'll rebound off you and go with a similar player in a similar bucket in this class. That's Rondell Moore from Purdue. Uh, obviously, comes in a more compact size, five seven even, uh, but th- he's short but he's not small. This is a thickly built kid who's explosive and powerful and urgent as an athlete uh, can be used out of the backfield. Shallow crosses a lot of, you know, when you watch how he was used at Purdue, everything was close to the line of scrimmage. I think you go back to early, his freshman film, you could see him used over the top at times. They'll throw him some goes and some fades and some post routes. Um, But I think overall, a lot of it was quick throws. Let's get the ball into this guy's hands and let him work. I think when you look ultimately at his skill set, yeah, he's going to be a gadget type player for you. What else can he be? Rondell Moore has shown that he can be a three-level weapon in the NFL. I'm excited to start at the college level. I'm excited to see what he could do at the mm-hmm. NFL level. So uh, Rondell Moore certainly would be a candidate for most versatile. Ben, uh, who's the guy that comes to mind for you when you think about versatility in this class? Well, it's a deep slot group. It's a deep slot back group. Honestly, throw a dart. You know, you yeah. want to talk Smith-Marset or D.S. Courage. Amari Rogers took handoffs at his pro day. He looks like a running back back there. He's going to do that stuff to the next level. But Amonra St. Brown, mm-hmm. I've been saying all fall, has some of the most diverse production from a receiver. From inside, outside, all three levels, yards after catch, double moves, uh, winning at the catch point down the field, adjustments. And then if they need to in a pinch, go put him in the backfield or run outside zone where he had a 30-yard touchdown against Colorado in 2019. He's a guy you just cannot find enough ways to use and to implement to the offense to get the ball in his hands. He's a really good-looking athlete. I don't care about that 40-time, uh, but he's a really, really versatile player. Uh, he's a guy that I really like. I think I'm a little bit higher on him than most people. And uh, I'm glad that he is the first repeat uh, you know, uh, person that we've named here uh, in this segment so far. So uh, I'm glad you named him as most versatile. Let's go one more category, guys. Player comparison. Uh, ben, I'll, I'll bounce right back to you. Uh, who's a guy when you look at this class, you say, yeah, I really see an easy transition, an easy comparison uh, for a player that has had success in the NFL. Well, Amur Smith-Marset out of Iowa has been getting some buzz here in the offseason now that we're digging into his traits and what he can do. They had some quarterback issues there. If he was in that crimson and silver at Ohio State, we're talking about a Ted Ginn style player. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to be a much better pro. And the low-hanging fruit, everybody wants a Devonta Smith comp. 
go to Isaac Bruce coming out of Memphis. Also six foot, 175, not a blazer, and comfortably, you know, had a nice 12, 15 year career or even late into his career, was an absolute workout freak and would always blow past the young kids and rookie camp, absolute workhorse. So Devontae Smith, Isaac Bruce, a little bit of a throwback. Amur Smith-Marset, Iowa, a lot of Ted Ginn in his game. I like that. All right, Dane, let's come to you. Uh, player comp that stands out to you. Uh, a few that I really like, Amari Rogers and Debo Samuel. Uh, I really like that with the play strength. Sure um, uh, Jalen Darden and uh, uh, Jakeem Grant. Uh, I like that one as well with the, you know, the lack of size, but uh, they've got some juice. I'm going to go with Tutu Atwell and uh, Marquise Brown. Uh, it just, it, the size, the lack of size, uh, it, it, that makes it a fit. Also, just the speed. Um you know, it really makes an interesting draft conversation with Tutu Atwell because, you know, Marquise Brown obviously went in the first round, but should he have, you know, as we look back and you look at back at his impact, his production, and you could argue maybe he probably shouldn't have. And, you know, but where, where do you draft a player like that? And I think it'll be the answer different for every single, you know, organization and their roster makeup and where they are, uh, you know, with the, the roster management in their wide receiver room. But a guy like Tutu Atwell can absolutely help you with that type of speed but the lack of size, some of the reliability issues uh, are, are going to be a problem. But, you know, is a team going to try and, uh, you know, really dig in on that speed and what that can mean for their offense early in the top 50? Or is it going to be more of a, a third round guy? So it, it really makes it interesting when you have a player that's that's similar, like a Marquise Brown, who uh, has a lot of similar attributes, but you kind of question, OK, what, what what's his true value when it comes to the draft? I mean, he was listed 190. He came in at 155 at the pro day. I, I mean, that's lighter than any receiver drafted in the last decade. I'm not sure when the last time there was a receiver that was sub 200 or sub 160 uh, drafted. Uh, I mean, he is going. To, uh, he's an outlier for sure. And that's the thing. It's like you know, we we come we talk about Devontae Smith's weight. I mean, he's 15 pounds lighter than Devontae Smith reportedly. You know, Smith <laughs> didn't officially weigh it, but like uh, it is. It's wild just how small he is. But he is certainly dynamic. Where did they about, get 190 from? I mean, that's right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, he, he was like he was 170 or 175 as a sophomore or listed at and right. they bumped him up like 15. But he didn't look it. So I thirty five pound never, difference. 190 yeah. to 155 is not Good even close. Uh, it's uh, he's certainly small, but uh, I mean, he is uh, an electric player for sure. So I, I am interested to see ultimately where he ends up in this class uh for me i'm gonna go with rashad bateman and he's another guy when you talk about like the height weight speed stuff like uh you know the measurables not quite matching what he was listed at uh you know rashad and that kind of changes the math when you're looking at player comparisons and ben you and i talk about this all the time if you're comparing a player uh from college to the nfl and the measurables are completely off you're you're saying oh well player a is just like player b oh except he's three inches shorter and 20 pounds lighter. Well, that comparison doesn't really hold up uh, all that well. When you look at Rashad Bateman, you know, he was listed at like 6'2", 6'3". He was listed up, you know, over the north of 200 pounds, 205 pounds. So I'll watch him on film and you see the technical proficiency. You see just, you know, how he's able to win. I'm like, oh, you know, this guy looks like a Michael Thomas. He looks like an Allen Robinson. You You look like Corey Davis. Like he looks like those kind of players. But then he checks in at the pro day. And he's just over six foot. He's 190 pounds. Now, part of that was due to the fact uh, that he actually had COVID uh, over the course of the summer and early fall and has struggled to kind of get that weight back up to that point. Um, But still significantly smaller than where he was listed. So now I'm like, all right, at this frame with the way that he wins and then even factoring in how he tested, like you said, he tested a little bit better uh, than people imagine. I'm like, all right, well, what about a Stefan Diggs? What do you guys think of that? I mean, do you feel like Rashad Bateman can compare favorably uh, to a Stefan Diggs when he was coming out of Maryland? I think that's fair. Yeah, the sharper out running and the size profile, I think that fits. Right. I, athleticism wise, Bateman's interesting because I, I don't know that he necessarily always plays up to yeah. what he runs and tests, um, where I felt like Diggs maybe does a little bit more. But I mean, yeah, you can't deny what what Bateman did at his pro day in terms of the the 40 and uh, the, the testing number. So I, I, that might be the, the high end comp, but it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Bateman is a, a really fun player and it's going to be interesting to see ultimately where he ends up going off the board. So we talked about uh, a bunch of the big receivers in this class. Obviously you can go back. If you're just listening for the first time, you can go back and listen to some of our opinions uh, and others opinions on some of these other receivers as well. Uh, but we're going to now do our next segment here. And it's one of the fan favorites. We didn't do it last week. We're bringing it back for one more time before the draft. It's time now to go on the clock. 
on the clock. All right, guys, where well, we are now on the clock. And uh, if you are just listening to this for the first time, basically what happens is we take over three teams and three of us get to play the role of a general manager. And we basically select one random position for one random team at one random area of the draft. So uh, basically, I've got a tab on my on my laptop that's got a little bit of a randomizer on it. We say, all right, let's, let's spit these out. So, Dane, uh, you'll be up first, and you are picking an offensive lineman for the Washington football team, and you picked round one. So we've got uh, some blue chip players that we could discuss here. Uh, kind of lay out for us what you're looking for for the Washington football team as an offensive lineman round one, uh, you playing the role as general manager. All right. Well, I'm not going to make this too complicated. Uh, anything we find in the first round at what 19 overall, uh, it's going to be an upgrade over what we trotted out there at left tackle last season. So the bar is pretty low, but let's, let's find a left tackle for this team. Uh, ideally we want a player who has a strong track record of staying healthy and on the field. Uh, we want a good mix of quickness power. I, I don't know that technique is as important because we can coach them up. We can, let's just get a guy with talent feet, the size, uh, the know-how, I mean, it, you know, we can coach up the rest, but let's get a guy with talent that can come in and compete for starting reps at, at left tackle. All right, so uh, I will play the role of the scouting staff, and I'm going to outline a couple options here. And to me, um, look, let's look at the local kid uh, who's you know just from around the corner here uh, in the Maryland area. That's Christian Darishaw, played down at Virginia Tech, uh, also pretty local to where we're at. Uh, this is a big kid with really light feet. He can certainly play the role of a pass protector on the left side. Uh, he's also strong. We can coach him up a little bit in terms of uh, his finishing skills and everything. But I think when you look at Darashaw, uh, he certainly fits the mold of the kind of players that we have selected in the past. You look at Martin Mayhew as general manager, but then also look at Marty Herney as well uh, in Carolina with what he has done. I think Darashaw uh, certainly kind of fits what they are looking for uh, up front along the offensive line. A couple more options here. If we decide that we want to take a big swing, uh, Walker Little uh, from Stanford, I think, is worthy of being a first-round talent. And I think when you look at you know us being a, uh, a zone-heavy scheme with Scott Turner, our offensive coordinator, Walker Little fits that very, very well. Uh, so I would look at him at left tackle. And then if we just want to, hey, let's just keep this in the fairway, maybe the safest, quote-unquote, to, to go back to an earlier segment uh, of this group, Liam Eikenberg uh, from Notre Dame. This guy is a ground-roll double. Uh, you might be swinging for the fences here with Walker Little, Christian Dyershaw, maybe a little bit more variability as well. I think with Eichenberg, he is a rock-solid selection. He's technically sound. He's not quite as gifted as the other two, um, but I think he's going to be a solid starter for a long time. So those would be the three options I would lay out as the scouting staff. Uh, ben, as the coaching staff, uh, lay out what you're looking for. Who are some options uh, that come to mind for the Washington football team? Well, those are the names I had written down as well. Right at the top was Tevin, Tevin Jenkins at nice. Oklahoma State, I think would be a nice fit. But Christian Darisaw, I think, checks a lot of boxes for us. And uh, even the the local aspect and being kind of a uh, a local product in the area. But we want to get back to the power game. Inside zone, duo, power, counter, those vertical displacements. So we want that nasty but you got to be able to pull too. And we're going to work the screen game. These are all things that Darisol did so well at Virginia tech, uh, despite that kind of thick frame, he was okay in space. I'm just worried that he's not going to make it past the chargers at 13. If this is a real pound the table spot after the Eagles pick at 12, I might be trying to uh, maybe make a little magic here uh, with one of those teams earlier, maybe a couple picks to make sure we get Darisol if he doesn't fall to 19. Hmm. It's a, certainly be something uh, interesting to follow there. D Dane, you're uh, the general manager now. You're playing the role of Martin Mayhew. Uh, you've got the players at your feet. Uh, who are you selecting here? Hey, you guys sold me on Darisaw. I mean, I think that that makes a ton of sense in the world. Um, you know, track record of staying healthy. Get Walker a little out of here. Come on. No way. <laughs> uh, but no, what, what is our backup plan if uh, Walker, if Darisaw is gone? Do we feel about, do we feel good with Lee and Meikenberg that early? Do we think Tevin Jenkins can play on the left side or is, is it Darisaw or bust here if we're looking for a left tackle at 19? It's a good question. Uh, ben, I don't know your thoughts on it. To me, I think that Eichenberg is perfectly fine at 19. Uh, I think that you could see other tackles that have been of his skill set, you know, and his talent level that have gone off the board in the middle of round one, and no one's really blinked an eye if they've turned out. If they, if, if Liam Eichenberg reaches his ceiling as a, a good, a solid to good starter, no one worries about the fact that he went 19 instead of 42. Uh, I think that that's uh, not really concerning at all. I thought Eichenberg would be a little bit more of a outside zone scheme fit. I kind of like this quickness off the ball, particularly on the backside. I wonder if we could kind of hedge our bets, go elsewhere, and maybe come back around and get like an Alex Leatherwood in the second round that I think won't fit at the tackle for everybody, 
But I think what we want to do, Leatherwood would be a nice fit there. So as far as backup plans, maybe Tevin Jenkins there, Eichenberg, or maybe uh, go elsewhere. I do think that that's an interesting discussion that teams will be having if they, if this scenario pops up, Dane, is, hey, you know, Darishaw goes off the board. Would we rather have Liam Eichenberg and then whatever we're left with in, in round two? Or do we say, all right, let's take a better player and then gamble about what we want at a bigger need uh, when we get a little bit later in the draft? Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe we have to even consider Alex Leatherwood at 19 because, right. you know, he might not even make it out of the first round. It's tough with these tackles. Uh, so let's just let's just cross our fingers that Christian Darisol will be there because uh, I think he'd make a ton of sense at 19. You think he's got a shot at uh, at going off the board before this point, Dane? In my mock draft, I gave I put him at 17 to the Raiders. Uh, you know that right tackle they're missing with uh, uh, you know Trent Brown no longer there. So I think Chargers at 13 uh, probably the highest he would go. Uh, you know, the Chargers as they stabilize that offensive line, it would make some sense. Um, you know, but offensive line is always tough because tackles, the good ones usually don't last. So, um, I, I think it'd be maybe a little bit of a coin flip, whether or not he makes it to 19 or not. All right, well, let's go to uh, our next team here. And Ben, uh, you are going to play the role of general manager. You are Trent Balky for the Jacksonville Jaguars, your position off ball linebacker. And we're looking in round three. So the third round of the draft linebacker for the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, Ben outline what you're looking for here is, uh, is Trent Balky. Yeah, exciting times here. Trent Balky, Urban Meyer, Darren Bevel. We got Joe Cullen coming over to uh, man the defense from Baltimore, legendary defensive line coach. Hasn't been a coordinator in about 15 years, so we'll see if he's still got it. But linebacker's kind of open-ended. So do we want to go address our Sam outside linebacking spot where we had Wisconsin kid Leon Jacobs in there, a little disappointed with Clavion Chasen. I think we need more pass rush juice out of our outside linebacking position. Tougher at the point of attack. I know I'm asking for everything there. But if we're going off ball, spent some money on Joe Schobert last year. Didn't live up to expectations, in my opinion. So if it's more of that Mike Will, I need the tackling machine. I need the tough run stuffer with good range, good run defenders. And honestly, then let's get them off the field. Coming the way we played in Baltimore, we were one of the highest dime dollar teams of the last three, four, five years. We love our pressure schemes on third down. Essentially, we want these linebackers on the field to take them off the field. So first and foremost, those off-ball guys have to be savants against the run. But if we're talking outside linebacker, Sam, we need a little bit more pass rush juice. That's a tough player at the point of attack. All right. Well, Dane playing the role of scouting staff. Ben just outlined the uh, the, the menu there. Uh, what do you got for us on the grocery list here, Dane? Well, the first name that that stood out, I thought, was Baron Browning from Ohio State. Obviously, our coaches all have something to say there with the, the connection. Uh, you know, Coach Meyer recruited Baron Browning and, and plucked him out of Fort Worth, brought him to Columbus. So there's a familiarity aspect there. But we talk about a guy that's 6'3", 245 pounds, runs in the mid four fives, uh, 6'7", 8", and a three cone, has 33 and a half inch arms, can rush the passer, you can put his hand on the ground. But he could stand up and uh, cover tight ends out of the backfield. I mean, just a great-looking athlete, quick reactive movements. Uh, you know, the mental process is still a little bit of a work in progress for him. But we talk about just the, the raw measurables, the size, the length, the athleticism. Uh, I, I think there's a lot to like there about a a Sam linebacker, a guy that could, we could keep on the field and be a designated pass rusher. Uh, on certain certain uh, packages. I, I think that's a, a viable way to get him on the field as well. So uh, Baron Browning certainly, uh, I think, checks some boxes there. And then let's just stay with the Ohio State theme here. Uh, obviously, in, a, in an un, or a weird year like this where we don't know these players maybe as much as we'd like to, uh, we've got a connection here with uh, w- with our coaching staff. Uh, so you know Pete Werner uh, with Ohio State. I don't. He, he may be more of your will. Um, a guy that you know, can play uh, off the ball, drop in space, really uh, instinctive from depth. Uh, you know, reads run pass quickly, and you know, trust what he sees. He shows range uh, on, on film. Uh, resets his eyes quickly and makes plays. So Baron Browning, Pete Werner, uh, I, I think the coaching staff uh, will be pretty excited about those two names. So uh, I will take over here as the coaching staff. And Joe Collin, as you said, Ben, uh, the new defensive coordinator, a couple of other assistants came over with him from Baltimore. When you look at that scheme, as you mentioned, heavy sub package, extremely multiple. And when you look at how they used their linebackers last year, 
they were basically specialty roles. They had guys that played in base. They had other guys that played in nickel. And then they would go to dime and dollar. And most of those guys would come off the field anyway. So uh, I don't think we need to be scared of guys that have very, uh, you know, tunnel vision uh, skill sets. You know, maybe they can only be used one or two ways. That's okay. We can fit them in to our scheme. Um, a couple of names. First of all, I had both the Ohio State kids written down there. So Baron Browning, if we like him as a Sam, we certainly can, you know, fit him in here. Pete Werner, uh, we definitely can find room for him as well. So uh, Dane already hit the, the highs and lows of both those players. I don't need to hit on them again. Two more names I want to bring up. Uh, first up, Derek Barnes from Purdue. Uh, this is a player that Urban Meyer is familiar with in the Big Ten. He's got versatility. He can come down and put his hand in the dirt and get after it as a pass rusher if we need him to. But ultimately, you watch the way that he attacks the line of scrimmage in the run game. He's instinctive in pass coverage. I think that he kind of fits uh, maybe like a Malik Harrison type style uh, for us. Not only did we have him in Baltimore, but also Urban Meyer had him at Ohio State. And I think Derek Barnes uh, can fit that kind of a role. And then also, you know, when I look at at, uh, at uh, Trent Baalke, he comes from San Francisco and they took they took plenty of medical risks, uh, you know, chances on guys that had injury histories. And so uh, when you look at like a Chaz Surratt uh, coming from North Carolina, this is a guy that I don't think would worry us. He also is kind of similar to Patrick Queen in terms of overall skill set. I had him last year, Joe Collin, uh, over in Baltimore as well. So uh, Chaz Surratt, if he were to fall around three would make sense. Derek Barnes, I think, makes some sense. And I would throw the two Ohio State kids in there as well, Werner and Browning. Yeah, that's a great hopper of names. And I'm sick of the multiple tools. I want more of a versatile player that can be more of a fixture of the defense. Man, my eyes and ears lit up when you said Baron Browning, my connection to Urban Meyer. I feel like we're hedging the bets somewhere between Leon Jacobs, which is an undersized, lacking length Sam. We got him in the seventh round a couple years ago. And then Clavion Chason, who's the string bean we got in the first round. We're going to kind of merge them together and get Baron Browning right in round three. I think that's kind of the best of both worlds of both those prospects. A guy that I don't see we have to take off the field a whole lot. We want to go sub, nickel, dime in the dollar. We're just going to rush him off the edge. And I think he's a guy that uh, could be a little bit more of a mainstay at that linebacker position. All right, well, let's go now to uh, the next one. And I will play the role of John Schneider out in Seattle. I'm picking for the Seahawks, a tight end early day three. So we're going like round four, round five here. Uh, and basically what I'm looking for, uh, look, Pete, Pete Carroll is still the head coach. Run game is going to be important. So this is a player that cannot be a liability in the run game. He's got to be able to find some way to help. So whether he's an inline player or if he's more of a wing or a fullback and a guy that can insert and be used on the move, that's fine too. But you need to be able to help in the run game. Number two, we look for height, weight, speed athletes. That is always important to us. So uh, we like tight ends. Uh, all of our pass catchers, honestly, that can be used on deep crossers, over routes. That's what all, that's been the basis of our offense, especially off play action. So uh, to me, you know, guys that can get vertically down the seam, uh, that can be used on those crossers, those linear routes. I think that that certainly uh, would fit well with us. Always going to factor in the toughness and competitiveness factor. I think that goes uh, with the run game. So we're looking for tough guys. Uh, and then brownie points for guys that, you know, maybe we're seen as big time recruits or maybe have unrealized upside. So uh, those would be the things that I'm looking for as John Schneider. Uh, ben, you are the scout. Uh, give us what we're looking for here. Yeah, a couple of directions we go here. Early day three. So we're talking around four, around five. Uh, maybe that's Pro Wells at a TCU. Has really good size and a thick frame, 6'4", 250. Maybe a not an A in receiving or blocking, but a nice B, B minus in both. And I think that's what you want to take on a, you know, a day three type of project. Briley Moore is an interesting player. Reminds me a lot of Dustin Keller that came out of Purdue several years ago. Kind of a stiff H-back role, but he's a really tough player. He's going to be able to block well in the perimeter, get open off play action. But the guy that I think is in the right ballpark here for us, several years earlier, we took Nick Vanette out of Ohio State in round three. I see a similar player in John Bates out of Boise, but more in the round four, round five range. A guy that very athletic, very tough, experienced blocker, minimal production, minimal buzz, just because he wasn't featured in that offense at all. She went down to Mobile as a late call up to the Senior Bowl and seemed to be more than willing to mix it up with some higher level prospects, uh, particularly in the run game. I think his best football is ahead of him. Uh, and there's some interesting options and kind of a lesser tight end class and there might be maybe a scooter harrington out of stanford maybe a luke farrell out of ohio state there's a lot of interesting guys here that i think day three tight ends there could be some surprises you know maybe matt bushman who's 25 years old and ready to play uh a lot of teams want tight ends that can contribute early without the developmental curve so a couple options there for us all right i like it so uh dane let's go to you for coaching staff 
Yeah, I think Ben laid it out well with some some really good names. Um, one other name I think I would add to the mix here is Trey McKitty uh, out of Georgia. Now you talk about a, a former top recruit uh, you know, coming out of IMG Academy. He starts at Florida State. Uh, the production isn't all that great. Goes to Georgia thinking, okay, as a senior, he's going to be a, a big part of that offense. He has six catches, you know, but then you see him at the senior bowl and you see him, uh, you know, works, work downfield and track the ball well. And, you know, the uh, big hands, 10 and three quarter inch hands, uh, you know, the ball skills uh, as a blocker, he's not afraid to mix it up and get involved in the run game. So when we get into day three, we're talking rounds four and five. I think Trey McKitty certainly needs to be on our radar as a guy that can come in help out in the run game a little bit, but then also has some unrealized potential here with uh, as a downfield pass catcher. There, there's some ability here that I think is is uh, untapped that we can maybe get more out of and be a better pro than college player once, once we get our hands on him. So Trey McKitty, I think, needs to be in the conversation as well. I'm going to be honest. Uh, you guys really nailed it with those two last two, with those two big ones in particular. Uh, Dane, I thought you made a really good case for Trey McKitty. I think he definitely fits the Seahawks profile. Ben, John Bates is a player that I think also fits the profile and he checks a lot of the boxes. I'm ultimately going to go John Bates. Uh, I do think that when you look at the, the, um, the profile of both players, uh, that certainly matches. I think where Bates gets a little bit of the edge. He is a proven uh, core special teams player. And I think that that is certainly something that can serve as a little bit of a tiebreaker between the two guys. Uh, both guys went to the senior ball. Uh, both guys have athletic profiles, you know, limited uh, levels of production. Uh, but I'm going to go John Bates here. Good, good uh, group, though, for sure. Uh, certainly in that area of the draft. Well, guys, uh, this is our last one uh, doing that segment just like that. But this was a lot of fun. We'll probably do this again uh, next offseason, trying to do something similar. But uh, that was a good idea. And Ben was the one who uh, kind of originated that. So, uh, uh, we'll get back to doing that. But next week, uh, we've got a lot of stuff planned for both of you guys. Excited uh, for the draft to finally be here. Ben, Dane, thanks for joining us once again here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Compassionate and trusted care. Clinical expertise. It's the cornerstone of NovaCare rehabilitation and why they're the leading provider of physical therapy throughout the Delaware Valley. Don't let aches and pains or any injury slow you down. Schedule an appointment today at NovaCare.com. The Philadelphia Eagles choose NovaCare, so can you. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. All 32 teams are always under construction. How are they being built? Let's check out the blueprint. Welcome to the first ever NFC East roundtable for the 2021 NFL Draft. I am John Schmoe from the New York Giants. We have a representative from each of the four teams in the NFC East. We have Julie Donaldson from the Washington football team, the division winners. We have Fran Duffy from the Philadelphia Eagles and Dave Hellman from the Dallas Cowboys. Welcome, everybody. This should be a lot of fun. Julie, you get first dibs as your division champion. I will note we have not had a repeat division champion in 17 years in the (laughs) NFC East. And the other funny thing, folks, is that each one of these franchises either has a new GM or a new coach in the last two years and a new quarterback in the last two years, except for Dave Hellman, though Prescott did miss, what, 11 games last year, Dave? So I'll just throw you into the mix anyway, just in case. Yeah, that seems fair based on, uh, you know, it was kind of a rotating door at QB in Dallas last year. So, yeah, Dak almost feels new at this point. And a brand new contract for him, too. So that 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 that's always good. So, Julie, I guess let's start with you. I guess the outside thought heading into the draft for Washington is still trying to figure out quarterback. Is that more outside noise than inside reality? Or is that what the main focus is down there? Well, if you're going to say the main focus means we're going to go for a quarterback in the first round and trade away our future in order to move up to get that. Cause I think that's, what's going to require, right. We're looking at a quarterback going first, second, third in the draft, potentially even fourth. Um, you're going to have to give up a lot to get a guy that you love. And there's a lot of rumors out there. I, I tend to think they are just rumors. Um, you know, look, we brought in Ryan Fitzpatrick. You understand he's in his 17th season. He's not the long-term answer by any stretch of the imagination, but he buys you time. You know, he brings a little bit of stability. This team is very young. And I know this coaching staff really wanted to bring in. They love what Alex Smith offered these guys. They wanted to bring in somebody that had that same kind of presence in the locker room to kind of help coach, mentor the young guys up. And then when they find the right guy to be able to plug him in place, as opposed to when Coach Rivera last drafted the quarterback Cam Newton first, you had to build everything around Cam Newton, right? Wants to put the pieces in place. If the right QB is in front of them, 
give them that chance to grow. But I don't see that happening in the first round. Maybe there's a gem where somebody can steal in the second, third, fourth rounds and kind of groom and grow up. But I don't anticipate us trying to chase any of you guys like Cowboys. Like you said, Dak's fine. We didn't mind seeing your quarterback shuffle last year, but we do want to beat the best. We, we have to go up against you with Dak if we are going to do that and keep the crown. Um, and then I think, you know, QB is going to go to Philly, right? What are you guys doing over there? Well, and I think that's what, you know, obviously if the Eagles had stayed at six, that certainly would be a discussion. But uh, I think that's the beauty of being able to move back uh, to number 12 is that not only do you acquire that future pick for 2022, but then you also, uh, the board opens up and now there's just so many different paths that, that they can go. So now I think you look at what Dallas does at number 10, you look at what the Giants do at number 11, and we'll see how the board falls and we'll see what, it, what what's left after that. But I do like the optionality of what the Eagles have, you know, at their doorstep now with the 12th pick. Fran, is this full like reset rebuild mode for Philly here? Could we see another trade down, acquire more picks? Or do you think they're somewhere in between where they're probably going to stick and pick at this point? I do think that they've got now, especially when you look at the, I mean, they've got more picks in this draft in 2021 than any team in the NFL. They've got a couple of extra picks already in tow for next year as well. They've already got two extras. So I think when you look uh, at that ability, yeah, like they have the ability to move back. They've got the ability to move up. They can stay put. And, and I, I do like that optionality as I kind of put it earlier. I think that they've got uh, the ability to do a number of different things. I don't know that you would look at this as a, as a pure rebuild. Uh, there are certainly some veterans that are here in place in the building that uh, you know are, would like to be able to continue to keep winning. And, and I think that would be, uh, you know, on their forefront of their minds is, you know, when you look at Brandon Graham's and Jason Kelsey's of the world, uh, those guys are, are definitely going to be in it to win it with this new staff. So uh, I'm excited to see what this can look like, how many picks they come out of this draft with and uh, the kind of talent they can try and surround those vets with. And Dave, Dallas has what, 10 picks, right? You guys have quietly become the masters of the compensatory draft selections, by the way. People talk about the Patriots. Dallas has been very good at that the last few years. And you really get to be the guy that drops the bomb on the first round here because Dallas, the Giants, and then Philly, back to back to back in this first round. You guys get the pick first. I know you do the draft show podcast, very popular. Who's Thank the you. one or two guys that the Cowboy fans just don't stop bothering you about that they are dying yeah. to have dropped to 10? Well, it's really funny because it's, I mean, you know, getting getting a top 10 pick was not fun. But now that you have it, it's it's fascinating to think all the fun ways you can go with it. But on the other side, the way this division shook out, it creates a little bit of anxiety because you're saying, all right, the Cowboys are going to get a great player at 10 it also means they're going to push great players down the board to the Giants and the Eagles in Washington. I mean, you know, people, I can't tell you how many people talk to me about, are we really going to let Jalen Waddell or Devontae Smith or Jamar Chase wind up in New York or Philly or any of these other great guys? So it's, it's fascinating to see how that plays out. Um, the debate in Dallas right now is it's, it's literally a best player available versus need situation. Because if you watch the Cowboys, you don't need me to tell you their defense was atrocious, uh, historically bad by franchise standards, dead last against the run. This is a team that needs defensive talent. But if you follow the draft, you know all of the value at the top is on offense. And now, so you're talking about, you know, Panay Sewell and Rashawn Slater, these dynamite offensive tackles. Might they get pushed to you because of all the quarterbacks? Or And then the big one, this is the guy that Cowboy fans love to talk about, do they have a shot at Kyle Pitts? And, uh, you know, Jerry Jones mentioned it last week in the news that he's enamored by this guy. And, and how can you blame him? Which, yeah, I, I see y'all shaking your head. I don't, think, I don't think he'll be there either. I don't think Kyle Pitts will last to 10. But if he does, does this team need him? No. But can you pass up that type of talent? I don't think so. And uh, so that, that's an interesting dynamic where – you know, if I had to bet today, I think the Cowboys probably draft Patrick Sertan, maybe J.C. Horn, get yourself a cornerback who can lock down half of the defense. But if an offensive player that meets that criteria is there, they did it last year with C.D. Lamb. I don't think you can count it out again this year. Yeah, it's funny, Dave. I think the Giants are kind of in the same situation, right? Dave Gettleman was very, very busy in free agency, uncharacteristically, I think, for the Giants. Kenny Galladay, Adore Jackson, two guys at the top of their position class. They don't have necessarily like that glaring need. You can help the offensive line. You can always use another weapon. But, the, you know, other than edge rusher, and I don't think there's a guy that's probably worth picking at 11 that's a pass rusher in this draft. 
there isn't really a guy that they have to take. Giant fans would love Kyle Pitts, but you guys can shake your head at me too. I know that's not going to happen. But, you know, if they're choosing between like a Jalen Waddell, Rashawn Slater, and a Micah Parsons, I think that's a really interesting conversation to have. And, and I think, Julie, a great situation that Washington is in is that usually around where you guys are picking, there's one top 15 player or top 12 player that kind of just slides down the board. And you'll have the opportunity to just kind of gobble them up unless are they really trying to focus on an individual position to show up in need. Look, I have to address Kyle Pitts. First off, I am a Florida Gator. Um, he was <laughs> so much fun to watch on Saturdays. Like there was nothing he couldn't catch. And you go and you see his measurables at the combine, you realize, yeah, he is he's a generational freak of nature, that guy that no team can really pass on him. Um, I even hear rumors that San Fran could even maybe take him at three and decide not to go for a QB. I mean, here's and then Atlanta has all the options in the world to say, hey, you want him? We'll sell. You know, as they already have, you know, a lot already still going up with their so interesting to see what does happen but here's the thing even when I talk to coach and I say hey the Cowboys like Pitts it's like no way in the world will Pitts be there at 10 so I don't see him falling to <laughs> Dallas I think that would be a major shock every team would love to be able to add him to their roster of course we would as well um, but look I don't think we're going to sell that much to go up too high and, and as you mentioned you know a player especially the way this draft is shaking out with so many quarterbacks anticipated to go up there in the top you're going to have a lot of skill play guys that are going to fall. Um, you know, we definitely have a lot of areas of need, but this team feels that they address quite a few of those in free agency. They like bringing Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys to kind of give them some weapons on offense. They really like the addition of Will Jackson, the third from the Bengals, because uh, that was an area that we needed, um, you know, to add to quarterback or secondary. It, it, if you're going to look at where we think we're going to target um, at 19, kind of hoping that maybe, look, we need a linebacker. You know, maybe there's a linebacker that falls to us. We need some depth at offensive tackle. Maybe there's an offensive tackle that falls to us. Uh, but I think the big thing for this position at 19 is really kind of seeing first off what all three of you guys do and the few moves ahead of us to see which way do we adjust and then go from that, which is going to make it really interesting at 19. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing, and I'll just leave this open to the field, take it whoever you like. When do you think the first defensive player is going in this draft? I mean, when you're in talking, if you talk about some the, the receivers or anything, and it might not be until, what, eight or nine, potentially? Could it might not be until Hellman goes. Maybe ten. Yeah, Could it's possible. 10? It's interesting. I mean, I think I think I agree with that. Detroit, Detroit seems like a possibility just because, you know, again, with a new coach and a new GM, you can never be sure how they want to, you know, build their blueprint, what they prioritize. You know, with Jared Goff coming in, it's you know losing Galladay to the Giants. It seems like they could probably use help at receiver. I don't think you could rule that out. Um, but yeah, I mean the top the top five or six picks. It's hard to think about anything but offense all the way through. And that's you know I, I'm you know I I would pray I would pray for Kyle Pitts to be there. And I would I'm not I'm not banking on it. But even still, it's interesting to think though. You know, I I mentioned Rashawn Slater and Panay Sewell. It's going to be interesting to see how people value this stuff, especially if you do have defensive needs. I mean, it's funny, like Patrick Sertan almost kind of gets undersold because all of this offensive talent is so great. It's like he is a good enough player to be a top five or six pick. It just so happens that there's so much offensive firepower in this draft. So, yeah, I, I would think maybe seven, eight, nine, maybe ten. But um, I don't think that's a knock on the defensive players in this draft by any means. John, I feel like we need like a ticker or something to keep track of how many times Dave thinks that Kyle Pitts is going to fall oh, to number 10. Yeah, just on, keep, that's just keep come speaking on. it into existence. Dave. <laughs> hey, maybe hey, you got a hey. shot. <laughs> you, guys, you guys can laugh all you want, but you didn't think C.D. Lamb would be there at 17 that's either. True. That's so fair. Point. That's fair. Uh, to me, like, uh, I think the record, I think the lowest a defensive player has gone in the draft was, was Champ Bailey, and he was like six or seven going down to Washington. Uh, it really seems like that record's going to be broken. Right? It really feels that way. Uh, when you look at how this is going to shake out, obviously the quarterbacks have a big, uh, you know, partake, you know, have a big part in that. So, yeah, I got to think that it'll be, you know, close to ten or right around when Dallas picks when that first defensive player goes off the board. You know, the other fun part about this class, and I think it's a rare class. I like last year's top of the O line class better because I thought there were four guys that were just as good as the top two guys in this group. But boy, when's the last time we could sit here and say you're looking at pick? 50, 55 in the second round. And you feel pretty good about getting a guy 
that you can not just develop into an offensive tackle, but almost put him in there and feel like you're getting a pretty good level of play from them right away. And I think if there's one thing all four of these teams have in common based on either guys that have left or injuries last year, offensive line is always a priority. And boy, this is a deeper class. And I think I've ever seen in the years I've seen doing this friend. Yeah, to me, like it's going to be really interesting to kind of watch how that plays out on draft night, because when you look at offensive linemen just over the last few years, we've seen a lot of them go earlier than people may have thought. You know, you look at all the mock drafts and all the analysis in the months and months leading up to the draft. And then we get to day one and guys go off the board at 22 and 24 and 27 that maybe aren't viewed as long-term Pro Bowl players. But if you are viewed as a solid starter at offensive tackle, that is a very valuable commodity. So I kind of wonder, you know, we talk about, oh, you know, you can get to round two and take your tackle. And I feel like Washington, uh, Julie, you guys are a great example of that. Oh, they, they can wait to take, they can go and get a tackle in round two or round three. I wonder when that run is going to happen. And I think that's one of the interesting storylines for sure uh, going into this draft is when that run starts. If, uh, you know, if, if Rayshon Slater goes number 10 to Dallas, do people start to panic and say, these, these tackles then start flying off the board? I, I think that's one of the interesting storylines for sure. You know, yeah, I mean, we definitely need depth at that position. I feel like a lot of times we're, we're just playing, you know, plug, I mean, what, when you have Morgan Moses moving forward to left tackle, that's not exactly ideal, right? Um, but all things considered, our offensive line held up much stronger than we really anticipated coming into the season. We have Sadiq Charles last year that we never really saw on the field what he's going to do. Brandon Sheriff coming back trying to get a long-term deal. But I know a lot of team guys are kind of saying maybe uh, Christian Darisaw, uh, where he could go, you know, big thoughts, strong, physical, a lot of potential. I do think that there's a little bit of some knocks against him on his effort. Is he there the entire time? Is he mean enough, per se, when he's out there? Um, you know, has a little bit of struggles with the bull rush. But a guy that I think they would like to really try and grab if he fell to him and then might have to fall is Elijah Vera Tucker mm. um, out of Southern California. Versatile, powerful, and, man, he's hungry. And, Coach, they love, especially the way that you shift those O-linemen at times um, because you have to. They like that guy that has versatility, even though we probably need to focus on the left tackle position maybe more than others if you're to pinpoint one. You know, Fran, I think it's interesting, right? New coaching staff, but the guy that brought in the playmakers that you've dedicated a fair amount of resources to the last couple of drafts, right? They have a lot of young playmakers on the roster, same general manager, different coaches. Is that a position you think they're going to go back to, to try to add another high quality playmaker to, you know, Jalen Rager, Hightower, guys like that? Or do you think they might be focusing elsewhere? No, I think that that's the, again, going back to what I said earlier, the the beauty of them getting to where they did at 12. Uh, I, I think if they had stayed at six, it was really like a two or three man conversation at that point when you're looking at round one of the draft, uh, you know, you're looking at Jamar chase and Kyle Pitts and, you know, Jalen Waddle, Devonte Smith. You're talking about those playmakers. Now, if one of those guys falls, that's great. If one of the corners falls, that's great. Uh, if one of the offensive linemen, if they want to go to a different position, defensive end linebacker, all those options are on the table. I think that with 11 picks, it would shock me if they didn't address a bunch of these positions. But I think the, the beautiful part of it is, too, they took three receivers a year ago. You know, they took Jalen Rager. Uh, they were able to pick John Hightower, Quez Watkins on day three. All of those guys got to see significant reps due to injury here in 2020. They also got another guy off the waiver wire uh, back in the summer and Travis Fulgum, who had some outstanding moments through the year as well. So you had, saw a lot of young receivers come in. They were able to keep the receivers coach, Aaron Moorhead. He stays in, so you have some continuity in that room. So uh, I'll be interested to see if they decide that they want to go down that path. I don't know that it's a necessity, though, and I, I, my guess is that they would feel that way as well. We haven't talked. Go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. Oh, no, you're totally fine. I just, you know, Cowboy fans hate when I say stuff like this, but I just, I think the world of what Philly did with that trade because maybe I'm wrong and I'll eat crow if I am. I don't think that roster is as bad as the record suggests that it was. And so you talk about, you know, they're going to be at 12 where, you know, maybe a Jamar Chase still somehow falls in your lap. Or even if he doesn't, you'll have your pick probably between the second best corner in the draft or maybe the second or third best receiver in the draft. And oh, by the way, now you have resources that you can uh, use to address your quarterback position in the future if you need to. Um, or just, or just stock up. I mean, if Jalen hurts is the guy you can stock up next year with all those picks. Like, I just think that was a fantastic decision on their part to say, we're probably better than we looked last year, but we can still build toward the future without having to give up a great draft pick. Everybody. Thank you very much. I officially close the first ever NFC East round table. Everybody enjoy the 2021 draft. 
Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag. Hope you guys enjoyed that discussion. Again, a little bit of a uh, different spin on our blueprint segment. Uh, good stuff there uh, from John Schmelk, Julie Donaldson, Dave Hellman, uh, all three great, obviously, at what they do. Let's now get to a question here in our draft mailbag. And again, the best way uh, to help us is to go on Apple Podcasts, leave us a, a rating and a, and a comment. If you leave a question in the comment box, we'll answer it here on the show. And if you want to get on next week's fan Q&A with myself, Dane Brugler and Greg Cosell. Make sure you jump on now. Uh, get in while you can and get your question. We will answer every single question we get on next week's show. Let's get to this question here from TBKTHR, who left a five-star review saying, appreciate you, Fran, for your knowledge and your passion. Question, what percentage of quality interior offensive line in the NFL were interior offensive linemen in college versus those that were college tackles who were then asked to move inside at the next level? It's a great question, TBK. So uh, just looking at who the top interior offensive linemen are in the NFL. I think most people would say Quentin Nelson is the best guard. Yeah, he was a, he was a guard in the NFL or in college at Notre Dame. He was the left guard there, now the left guard with the Colts. Uh, some of the best centers, Rodney Hudson, Jason Kelsey, uh, those guys were centers through and through. Then you start looking around at who, some of the other best players. I think you look right here in the NFC East. We just got done talking uh, the NFC East roundup. You look at Zach Martin, you look at Brandon Brooks, you look at Brandon Scherf, all those guys were tackles in college that moved inside to guard in the NFL. You go maybe like another tier down, right? some of the other top interior offensive linemen. Uh, Joe Tooney just signed in Kansas City. Andrus Pete in New Orleans. Joel Batonio is out in Cleveland. Roger Saffold down in Tennessee. Uh, Mitch Morse uh, down at, or up in Buffalo. Ali Marpet down at Tampa Bay. Eric Flowers in Miami. All of those guys were college tackles that made that move. That's a lot of guys that made that move. So you, you start with some of the elites with the Martins and the Brooks and Scherf, but then also getting to some of these other players. All those guys were tackles. And sure, there are examples of other players that you know were guards through and through. Gabe Jackson and Trey Turner, those guys. Yeah, they were guards through and through. But there are a lot of, of examples of players who started that trend, started their careers at tackle. And then made the move inside the guard. And that's why, to me, you know, we're actually, I'm not even going to dive too deep into it. If you're into this position switch discussion, make sure you go check out the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, the one that drops tomorrow uh, on your feed. If you subscribe to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, myself and Ben Fennel, we are discussing position switches when you are projecting guys from college to the NFL. It's a fun discussion. You can go find it wherever podcasts can be found. Again, the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. But TBK, a lot of good examples of tackles making that move to guard and turning into great players. I went through a handful of them there. It's a great question. Again, if you want to jump into our Q&A next week with Greg Cosell, Dane Brugler, go leave it over on Apple Podcast page. Till then, we'll see you later this week right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Draft's almost here. Looking for a unique experience for the young Eagles fan in your life? Eagles virtual youth football and cheerleading clinics are now being offered on April 25th and May 16th. Register today at PhiladelphiaEagles.com slash clinics.